In the calendar of the church year, the sixth Sunday of Lent is always both Palm Sunday and Passion Sunday. Having sung the Palm Sunday story, let us hear the Good Friday story, Gospel according to Luke. It was now about noon and darkness came over the whole land until three in the afternoon while the sun's light failed and the curtain of the temple was torn in two. Then Jesus, crying with a loud voice, said, Father, into your hands I commend my spirit. And having said this, he breathed his last. And when the centurion saw what had taken place, he praised God, saying, Certainly this man was innocent. And when all the crowds who had gathered there for this spectacle saw what had taken place, they left for home, beating their breasts. But all his acquaintances, including the women who had followed him from Galilee, stood at a distance watching these things. Pray with me. May the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be acceptable in thy sight, O Lord, our Rock and our Redeemer. Amen. Do you remember the character of Annie, the minor league baseball groupie from that 1988 film, Bull Durham? She says, I worship at the Church of Baseball. I've tried all the major religions and most of the minor ones. I've worshipped Buddha, Allah, Brahma, Vishnu, Siva, trees, mushrooms, and Isadora Duncan. But I ended up in the Church of Baseball. I know things. For instance, I know that there are 108 beads on a Catholic rosary and exactly 108 stitches on a baseball. When I found that out, I gave Jesus a chance but it didn't work out between us. The Lord laid too much guilt on me. It's not a concept we're terribly fond of, is it? Guilt. We're not really that much into guilt in our modern world. Christianity lays too much guilt on us. Talked to a friend of mine on the phone a while back, and she's going through a rough patch in her life. One of her sons spent a few nights in jail recently, And another one is going through a messy divorce and her family and friends are telling her it's her fault. She doesn't agree and has had it about up to here with guilt. She's always been an extremely active member of her Presbyterian church. There were weeks a while back when she would spend more time at the church than I did. But she said to me the other day, I think I'm going to try Buddhism for a while. It's a lot easier. All you have to do is just detach let go, be indifferent, so much less guilt. And so she hasn't been to a Christian church for months. Like Annie from Bull Durham, the Lord laid too much guilt on her. But here's the problem. Distilled to its essence, our entire religion is an elaborately constructed answer to the problem of human error and guilt. The Bible, both in its Old and New Testaments, has this innate, pervasive, existential awareness of a huge chasm within us between the is and the ought, between human reality and divine intention, between what we are and what God wants us to be. Have you ever wondered why there is an instrument of execution in every house of worship in Christianity around the world? Now, what would you think if you went into a house of worship and they had an electric chair on the altar. But that's exactly what churches do around the world. Every church in Christendom is like this, except the new churches which look like 
the United Center or like the lobby of a Hyatt Regency Hotel. We wear them as jewelry. We stud them with diamonds and wear them around our neck or in our ears. Men and women. This is a, it's a little bit weird. But the reason that Christianity's central symbol is so central to our faith is that it's so central to the biblical story. The cross casts its long shadow over the entire story of Jesus. Jesus saves, we say all the time. And we mean by that that Jesus saves us by dying on the cross in our place. Mark says the Son of Man came to give his life as a ransom for all. It's as if humanity has been kidnapped by some sinister force and Jesus pays the ransom to set us free. John says, For God so loved the world that God gave God's only Son, that whosoever believeth in him shall never die but have eternal life. Paul says, I have resolved to preach Jesus Christ and him crucified. Nothing else. I've resolved to preach Jesus Christ and him crucified. It's all care. It's all Paul cares about. What do we know about the life of Jesus from the letters of Paul? Almost nothing. There's no Christmas, there's no Mother Mary, there's no Carpenter Joseph, there are no parables, no miracles, no Sermon on the Mount, no warm welcome to the sad outcasts of polite society. Paul does not care about the life of Jesus. All he cares about is the cross of Christ, in which we're set free from guilt and error. The cross is Christianity's answer to the problem of human guilt, this awareness of the difference between the is and the ought in us. George Bernard Shaw thought this was a problem. He referred to Christianity derisively as Christianity. And he might have a point. What if human, human beings don't care about guilt any longer? Maybe Christianity is an answer to a question nobody is asking. For most of Western human history, the central religious question has been, how do we get right with God? And then suddenly, sometime during the 19th or the 20th century, hum humanity stopped worrying about getting right with God. An angry God receded from human consciousness. And so life without regrets became the highest spiritual achievement. When the 19th century American naturalist Henry David Thoreau was close to death. He was languishing. It wouldn't be long. His friends urged Henry to get right with God. And Henry said, I didn't know that we had quarreled. That's kind of the attitude of most of us, isn't it? Get right with God. We didn't know that we had quarreled. Let's be honest about it. Do you lie awake at night worrying about getting right with God? If you claim on your college admissions application that you were an all-conference hockey player in high school but have never picked up a hockey stick, are you nervous that God is angry with you? On the other hand, you saw that coming, didn't you? <laughs> Most of us have this instinctive awareness of the chasm between is and ought, between human reality and divine intention. A while back, I knew a man who got angry with his wife, and he said the unkindest things to her. I couldn't believe what he said to her. 
He said she was self-centered and uncaring and an unworthy partner. And she got angry back, of course, and moved out and took the kids with her. And it's not clear yet when she'll return, if ever. In a single instant, he momentarily lost his mind and he also lost his wife. And he just sat in my office and wept and wept and wept, not only for his loneliness, but also for the regret, right? Just, can I have that moment back? Can I just have that one moment back? I'd do it differently. Yes? I knew another man who accidentally took the life of a stranger. He's good and kind and gentle, and it wasn't his fault. But he cannot sleep and constantly invents scenarios in his head about how that day might have gone a different direction. If only, if only, if only is the sad litany of his life now. When American GIs liberated the death camps in Germany in April of 1945, the very end of World War II, they found hundreds of bodies stacked like cordwood, starved, burned, emaciated, beaten. There's a German town nearby and the American troops go to the town and invite the mayor and his wife to come out to the camp to see what Nazism was capable of. And so the mayor and his wife go out to see the camp, and then they return home and hang themselves that night out of this terrible, overwhelming remorse. What in the universe can handle such towering iniquity? Miroslav Wolf tells us that during the Bosnian War, a three-year-old girl is gravely wounded by a sniper's bullet, and the grief-stricken father invites the assassin to sit down with him for a cup of coffee. And when the father is asked why he would want to have a cup of coffee with such a monster, the father says, one day her tears will catch up with him. Yes, if he has a vestige of humanity, one day her tears will catch up with him. And if you can't relate to those examples of cosmic villainy, transpose the music into a lower key, into a more personal key. When I'm, I don't know about you, but when I'm honest with myself, I find that I unwittingly trample the feelings of my friends and I wound with words and I'm often indifferent to the neighbor God has entrusted me with. I keep all that I have or most. How do we do? How do we undo what we have done? And so there it stands, the central symbol of our faith, casting its long shadow over the whole Christian story, an everlasting emblem of God's vast, relentless, unfailing love for God's children who sometimes get lost, sometimes get broken. It tells us that there is nothing God won't do to redeem the lost and to repair the broken. I told this story at the 9 o'clock service and somebody told me that Gil Bowen had told this 22 years ago. Good news, bad news, right? A parishioner who remembers a sermon from 22 years ago. Yay! <laughs> parishioner who remembers this. So, but it's a good story. So, so Richard Seltzer was an accomplished surgeon at Yale University Hospital and then went on to 
to write stories about his experiences as a doctor. And he tells us that as a surgeon once, he had to operate on a, on a tumor on the face of a lovely young woman. And in the course of the surgery, he had to cut a facial nerve so that her face drooped on one side a little. And after the surgery, they hand her a mirror to, so that she can see what she looks like now. And she's quiet for a long time. And finally, she says, will my mouth always be like this? And the doctor says, yes, it will. It's because we had to cut the facial nerve. And she nods and she's silent. But her husband's standing there and he says, I like it. I think it's kind of cute. And this very famous surgeon says, all at once, I know who he is. And I lower my gaze because one is not bold in an encounter with a god. He does not even know I am there. Unmindful, he bends to kiss her crooked mouth. And I'm so close, I can see how he twists his lips to meet hers, to show her that their kiss still works. I remember that in the old stories, the gods appeared as mortals. And I hold my breath and let the wonder in. He twists his mouth to show her that their kiss still works. The gospel says that we are all loved just like that, no matter how injured or broken or twisted we are. Loved by the power that spins the flying planets and fires the burning suns. So, do you think maybe it's a story the world still needs to hear after all these years? In Jesus, God ceases to be an enemy and becomes instead our first friend. In his death, my mistakes are nailed with him to that tree. Nothing is ever dead except in Jesus on the cross. Nothing ever lives except in his risen life. And so maybe, after all, the cross is the answer to the question we are all asking. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Ghost. Amen.